make it through all these names and then um, draw out some really important um, aspects of what this points us to. Here we have the introduction. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He introduces Jesus by going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and 12, back to the beginning of the Bible. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And I want you to just feel the length of time that passes as the generations go by. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Minadab, and Minadab, the father of Neshon, and Neshon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's a cryptic way of saying Bathsheba. Verse 7. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of, of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eleazar, and the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and I'm running out of breath right now, and, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, or to Christ, 14 generations. That's a whole lot of names. And you think, man, what a way to ruin a perfectly good book by starting with such a boring list of names. And yet... He does something in here um, by introducing Jesus this way that that I think is magnificent and should um, cause our hearts to stand in amazement of what God has done. There's two names that stand over all the rest that Matthew wants to tie Jesus to in his genealogy, and that is Abraham and that is David. That's that very first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both of those two men. And that's significant because both of those two men received two of, if not the, I believe they are the, the greatest promises of hope in the entire Old Testament. The greatest promises of hope in the Old Testament were given to this man Abraham and to given uh, King David. The first one, Abraham, all the way back at the beginning of of Genesis, um, God makes a promise. And he makes a promise and reiterates it a number of times, chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. That's just to make sure that Abraham knows this is a promise. And he promises, the essence of it is that he's going to bless Abraham. I'm going to bless you with descendants. I'm going to bless you with land. I'm going to bless you. And... 
the scope of that blessing is going to go to the nations. I'm going to bless the nations through you. But that's essentially the promise that he gives to Abraham back at the beginning of the Bible. I'm going to bless you. Now, it's easy to just read that in kind of uh, insulated form and not realize that really can't understand that promise without returning and rewinding to the Garden of Eden in which God blessed Adam and Eve with abundance, with provision, with his own presence, like he, he blessed them there in the garden. And it's not until chapter 3 where they make their fatal mistake and listen to the voice of the deceiver and partake of what's the only thing that's forbidden. And, and of course, then blessing turns to curse. And curse is the opposite of blessing. Everything falls apart. Marriages fragment. Brother rises up against brother. There's pain. Creation doesn't get along with humanity. I mean, the whole thing comes apart. That's the, the curse. That's the corruption of our world. So, when the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. What he's saying, in no uncertain terms, he's saying, I am going to restore you to your former glory yet amplified. I am going to reverse what's taken place. That's the promise. I will bless. The restoration of God's blessing, the blessing of his provision, of his presence, and so forth. That's the promise he gives to Abraham. A massive promise of blessing. Well, then you go down 14 generations from Abraham to David, and, and there you have another massive promise that the Lord makes. And these are promises that are unconditional. That is, the Lord says, I swear by my own name that I will do this. And he swears to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, he swears to him that I will establish your house and I will establish your throne forever. The implication being that someone's going to sit in a place of authority and rule over the world forever. Now again, I don't think you can really understand that promise without reversing to the Garden of Eden. Where the Lord, you know, blessed man but also gave him dominion. That is, Adam was to exercise the prerogatives and the authority of a king, to exercise a loving, benevolent care over creation as, as the first king of humanity. And yet, chapter 3 happens, and the throne is usurped, and God's good reign through his man, called the Son of God in, in Genesis, um, was taken captive, and everything fell apart. So when the Lord comes to David and says, I'm going to establish your throne and your kingdom forever, that's the Lord's way of saying, I'm going to restore my reign through a man. And I'm going to restore the benevolent, ordered, moral, good, benevolent reign through this man. So here you have these, these two massive promises. The prom of, pro, promise of blessing to Abraham and to the nations and the blessing or the promise of a kingdom through David's descendants. These are like two mighty rivers of hope that just, just travel through the whole Old Testament. And here, in Matthew's little boring genealogy, tying to Abraham and David, he's saying these two mighty rivers of hope merge into one person. That is into Jesus. That's how Matthew like opens up his book, and you can see why it's not just a genealogy. It points to the fact that, that this great, these two great promises where the Lord basically said, listen, 
I don't care whether all the forces of hell are aligned against me or all the nations rage. I promise that this will happen and it will come to fruition and nothing is going to thwart me. That's, that's the Lord guaranteeing, promising, swearing by his own name that these would come together and they would come to fruition. And here in the opening um, list, they all come down to Jesus who was born, who is called Christ or the anointed one. Now, I just, in, in my book, um, Matthew's just not an, introducing a great teacher or, or another prophet. He's basically saying this is the one This is the one in whom these great rivers of hope merge, my son, Jesus. Like I said, should create just a sense of, wow, he's introducing the one, like the one and only, the one who's um, the key to experiencing the blessing of God in your life again and to experiencing the goodness of God's reign in your life again and, of course, all the future aspects that still have to be done um, because of who Jesus is. But that's how he introduces that is, they center, the restoration of God's blessing and kingdom center on the arrival of Jesus. He came. That's how Matthew introduces him. Begins and ends with references to son of David, son of Abraham, the Christ. You notice something in here is that 41 generations come and die from the time of promise to the time of fulfillment. That's why I took the time to read all those names. You realize that the people, just like you and me, families and with feelings, Abraham was a, was a, was a shepherd and he was a nomad. He pitched his tent and, and then he um, broke down his tent and he'd go from place to place to place and then he died, never seeing the promise. And his son Isaac was a, was, a, was a shepherd and a nomad. He too, you know, went from place to place to place, and, and he died and never saw what was promised. And Jacob, he was a nomad too, a shepherd and a deceiver, and, and he died, never seeing the promise come to light. And all the way through, 41 generations like you and I came and died before the promise came. And that tells you something about, like, the timing and the scope of God's working. We tend to be an impatient culture, which is why we have express lanes and express highways and all those things. And for us, the idea that, that God is going to fulfill this promise 14 generations from now almost makes it completely irrelevant for our lives. At least that's the way it often feels. We need to understand that God has his time, and God sits on the throne, and God has determined the signs in the times and the seasons. And he has a purpose in Christ Jesus, a plan for the fullness of time in which he would work and unite all things. But it, it spans generations. It's epic. And that's something else you draw from this genealogy is the, the realization of God's promise in Jesus is an epic. That is a long time, an epic certainty. That means that we as God's people, even now, have to look beyond the gates of our own death and and trust in something bigger than our own generation or our own life. And and that's how people of faith have been doing it from generation after generation after generation. You just didn't look um, at the very next success or or the immediate struggle, but they were able to believe that what God promised he would do, even if it spans 42 generations. And here we sit, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus, as Abraham was about 2,000 years before. There's been a lot of time that's passed between 
Bethlehem in the 21st century. And yet, what we realize in looking back at this generation, this, this genealogy, is that while it extended over a vast period of time, it happened. It happened. That is, it came to fruition. The, the word that the Lord spoke, the word of promise, came into reality. That's the certainty with which we can guarantee our hope if we trust in the promises of the Lord. Not just for Jesus to come the first time and lay the foundation of redemption through his death and through his life, but, but to recognize that part two of Project Redemption is still to come. You know, in which he has promised. He was promised to return. And the heart that looks over all of these names and realizes, you know, it could be a long time. But there were people here who died believing, trusting, and hoping in that. And it made a difference in their lives. That Abraham could look forward to a city whose architect was the Lord and he could die knowing that someday he would see that. To live in that kind of faith in the certainty of the promise that Jesus will restore. He will restore God's former blessings to this planet and his former blessings to you and I and he will raise the dead and he will restore his presence with humanity so that we will hear those words of Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will dwell with them as their God. That's the promise. And to people who are fixated on the here and now, that promise isn't going to make much of a difference, which is why things like Advent are important to realize that we have to live a life with a faith and a hope that extends far beyond our own generation or our own life. God's promises, as you see in Scripture, span generations, but as the genealogy showed, the day came when Jesus was born. And the day will come when Jesus will return. That's our hope. All of those generations 14, 14, 14, and 14 from promise to fulfillment. And here we stand 2,000 years out. Who knows how many generations? 14, 14, 14, 14. We are now. But the word of the Lord is guaranteed, and this um, record proves that the Lord's word is certain. And one final thing is, is uh, if Jesus is the, like the center of God's promises, where those two great hope promises merge, and, uh, and if that promise is certain and it's true, even though it spans generations, another thing that, 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 that this genealogy tells us is the kind of people that are included in, in the hope. That is, um, sinners and outsiders who lived and died in, in hope. It's interesting that all of these, you know, when you're, you're reading through, or a Jewish person's reading through these genealogies, stories would have come to their minds. When you think of Abraham, you think of the good things that he did and the fact that he trusted the Lord, and then you realize, oh, yeah, he lied at least on two occasions and put his wife in marriage at risk. And Isaac did kind of the same thing, lied about his sister and put his marriage at risk and his wife. Jacob is the supplanter, the one who loves to manipulate people for his own private outcome. Judah sold his brother into slavery, Joseph. You kind of work your way through these names and you realize these are a bunch of messed up people. 
Then, of course, there's King David that he takes the time to remind us has a child by the name of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, the wife of adultery, as these were sinful men that God used to bring about the great promise of hope. And he includes some rather spectacular women as well, three of whom do not belong to the the people of Israel. Tamar, who seduced Judah to be her husband as a pretend prostitute, is Canaanite, a cursed people. Ruth, who married Boaz and had Obed, the the father of um, Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. She was a, a Moabite, which means she was part of a cursed people too. You have Rahab, um, who was a prostitute living in Jericho when Joshua came upon the, the city. And she decided to throw her lot in with the people of Israel and not her own people. And in the end, trusted the Lord. And all three of these women who were not a part of the people of Israel, in fact, they were part of cursed people, have been included. Once again, showing the, the amazing grace with which the Lord includes people, not just who are sinful, but people who are on the outside that he would use them in the unfolding of his, his great plan. And, and the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us that these people, though fallen and flawed, they looked forward with the faith. They looked forward. That's, hope is really just faith in a place of expectation. It is hope is, is faith waiting for the desired outcome. That's all hope is. It's just a future-leaning kind of, of faith. And And they heard God's promises, and they leaned upon them forward. They were trusting in them to be true. And on the the basis of that hope and that trust in the Lord, they became recipients of God's blessing. And, of course, the same is is true here for all of us. I I actually take great comfort in the fact that a bunch of screw-ups were in Jesus' genealogy. Because there's a lot of screw-ups in this room, including myself. And to know that what he asks of us is to hope and put our trust in his son, who's at the very center of everything that he's doing. You know, the center of God's blessing in our lives, and the blessing over creation, and, and in the, the establishment of God's good kingdom rule, not only here now, but someday over this planet. Um, and he simply calls us to believe, trust, to set our hope on him. There's no place in the Christian life, if we're to live it faithfully, for nearsighted living. Nearsighted, you know, and you can only see what's right in front of you. I used to be nearsighted, and then I had an operation. Now I'm farsighted. I can't even see. I have to, like, put in a contact in this eye so that I can read now, so I don't have to wear glasses and distract all you, so I can see up close and far away. That's actually kind of cool. <laughs> but there's no place in the kingdom life for us just to see the successes or the struggles right in front of us. I mean, if, if what we're hoping in, what you're hoping in is, is um, retirement, you can't wait, get away in your RV and, you know, live the life, live the dream, then you know what? You're going to get there and you're going to realize that this isn't all it was choked up to be, chalked up to be, and, and you're going to realize that it doesn't last. Um, and others who just can't take their eyes off of the current struggle, be that a health struggle or, or a pain or a relationship that's gone topsy-turvy and that's all you can think about, 
You know, it's just going to, the world and life is going to be a rather depressing, cynical place if that's all you can see. Now, those, those things are real. As mentioned last week, God brings success into life, and we should be joy with thanksgiving, but not hold on to it. And, and there are pains in life, but we shouldn't obsess over it. But the one thing that's primary is to make sure that we feed each day the simple hope that, that Jesus, Jesus stands at the end of history, you know? And, and he says to us, um, you know, set your eyes on me. I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me. You trust in me. You put your hope in me. And though you die, I will raise you to life. That I am, in the words of Revelation 21, making all things new. I am the beginning. I'm the end. The Alpha, the Omega. I give to anyone who has thirst freely so that you may taste of the new creation in my presence. Like that's, that's where we have to believe. That's where our hearts have to be. Otherwise, we just get gravitationally pulled down into the muck of the life or the, uh, the temporary allurements of what we think are good. And to, to run this race knowing that just as God promised and it came to fruition in Bethlehem, so God promises and it's going to come to fruition and we have to bank everything on that day and keep looking to that day and keep feeding hope for that day, um, the day in which the king returns and, and makes all things new. You know, I was... Um, I wasn't going to talk about the race on Thursday, but I was kind of, should I, shouldn't I? But it kind of fit in, you know, because I was actually thinking about this as we're running the turkey trot. That's a funny name for a run, turkey trot. Um, I haven't run a foot race in 26 years, so for me it was like a big step of faith. And actually it wasn't a step of faith. My wife drug me out there to do it. She's the, the runner. I wasn't even sure my legs would make it, you know. And, um, and we started a race, and of course there's a goal line at the very end. Um, and, and at first it was pretty cool, you know, I was like congratulating myself, like, hey, you're doing pretty good, you're not falling down, and you're actually running, keeping a fairly deep, 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 uh, good pace, and, and then out of the corner of my eye, this, this person comes streaking by me like I was on crutches, and I look over, and it's one of our own guys, this is Joel Marlette, just, just, just speeds on by me, and I thought to myself, you know, he must be doing the 5K, not the 10K. There's no way you can run that fast and do the 10K. Well, no, he was doing the 10K. And, um, and I just at that moment realized, well, I'm getting old. <laughs> and the first half, you know, you run out and back. And, and the first half, it was all kind of gravy. Like I said, this is a beautiful vineyards with all of the color. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm reciting verses in my head. You know, it's just, I think it was Isaiah 26 and four. That's what I do when I exercise, because exercise isn't fun, so I have to do something else, like just meditating on Scripture halfway out, and everything's going good, just like early in life, right? Things seem to go early in life. Well, then we made the turnaround, and all of a sudden, it's like cylinders started going out in my body, (laughs) and I started to realize that, you know, my knees, this one in particular is hurting. All of a sudden, I realized, you know, my breathing is starting to, like, like my breath is not keeping up with my legs, and at that point, I couldn't think about a verse to save my life. It's all out the window. Um, I didn't care about the color of the vineyard because I was thinking about one thing and one thing only. Um, and that was trying to catch the two ladies who passed me. <laughs> that was no way that I was having as soon as they passed me. I'm like, oh, man, all I could think of was the finish line. That's all I could think of. I, just, I know I'm going to get there, and you just kind of, Kind of, kind of move. Just keep going. And finally, you know, you, you come to the final, I don't know, 200 yards, and I realize, wow, there's a lot of people gathered at the finish line. 
And you know, as what went through my mind at that point, and I did start to think of verses, was Hebrews 11 and 12. It talks about the cloud of witnesses, you know? And, um, and you get closer and you realize there's this crowd of people that have been there before you, that have run faster than you, and they're kind of gathered around to cheer you in, and, and some of those faces were my family. And you know, I finally crossed the finish line. I was like, oh, I'm so glad that's done. I don't know if I'll ever do another one. And I circled around and joined the crowd and, um, and watched the others come home. And it's just, it just one of those pictures in my mind, you know? It's like um, Abraham ran his part of the race, and he finished, and he's doubled back, and he's waiting for you. And I, 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 Isaac has done his, and he's finished his, and, and Jacob, as, as screwed up as they were, they were men of hope and men of faith, and they ran the race. And David, across the finish line, circled back, and it's like, now it's our turn. Here we are. It's our turn. We're in the leg of the race. And at some point, it's going to be done, and we will cross that little finish line, but the race still isn't over. It's not until the very last person, the very last one that God says, your mind crosses over that finish line that the race is over. And once that race is over, then death will be swallowed by life. And we will rise together, and we will see his face and enjoy a renewed physical creation that's ten times better than what we have today. And that's what we live for. So brothers and sisters, that's what we have to keep our, our mind on. You know, they're waiting for us there. And we, together, when the last person crosses, will inherit the outcome, the fullness of these amazing promises that God promised a long time ago and says, trust and hope in me. Are you hoping in the Lord in your marriage? Are you hoping in the Lord in your job? Are you hoping in the Lord with your cancer? Are you hoping in the Lord with your old age? Are you hoping in the Lord with your broken heart? That's what Advent is about. That's, that's where our eyes need to be, and I pray and hope that somehow the Spirit will take these words and just give you some new life and new courage to pick up your eyes and look. Look to the one who stands on the other side of history. That race is going to come to conclusion, and it's going to be an awesome day. Amen. Amen. Lord, um, I, I need that hope revived in me as well, and I pray for all of our hearts in here. Again, just revive and renew hope in Christ. Revive and re- renew hope in, in his promises. Revive and renew hope in the new creation and um, and the resurrection, and seeing the face of God. Allow us, Lord, to see with eyes of faith that truth, and allow us to live by it, walk by it, and rejoice by it, and uh, to make our decisions by it. We just thank you for being so good to promise so much for people who do not deserve it. And we just praise you, Jesus, for your goodness. Amen.